0: Called a genius on fire. A man who, whose, quote, brief, intense flame burst of life made a significant and lasting contribution on all sorts of fields of human achievement, from philosophy to mathematics to engineering to physics. His name is Blaise Pascal. Is that a name that rings any bells in this room? Blaise Pascal was born in 1623, and he died in 1662, making him only 39 years old at the time of his death, an age that I will be in about two months. Twice in this man's life, first at age 23, and then again at age 31, this man testified to remarkable experiences of awakening and conversion to faith in Jesus Christ as his Lord and his Savior and his treasure. For Pascal, it was clear that his faith in Christ was deeply personal. And at the same time, for him, it was anything but private. Pascal wrote frequently, especially as he grew older, his writings became dominated with references to Holy Scripture, no matter what topic he was choosing. And rooted as he was in the story of redemption, he, he treasured the cross of Christ and he wrote freely of the pardon of Jesus across his works. And because of his devotion to Jesus and the scriptures, Pascal found himself absolutely floored by biblical prophecy. He couldn't escape it. His most famous work, his thoughts or his penses on the Christian faith is scattered and peppered with references to biblical prophecy. One of his typical, yet startling, and clarifying passages on this subject, Pascal writes the following, I see many opposing religions, and yet all of them are false, excepting one. Each of them, each religion asserts its right to be received on its own authority and fulminates threats against the unbelieving. I do not, however, believe them the more for these pretensions. All may make such. All may claim to have the gift of prophetical inspiration. But under the Christian religion, I find actual prophecy. And I find it in no other. I'll say that again. It's on your sermon outline. Pascal wrote, under the Christian religion, I find actual prophecy. And I find it in no other. Blaise Pascal is 100% right. And if you'd like to know why, I invite you at this time to open a Bible to Daniel chapter 2. If you're using a red Bible from the seats, the text begins on page 737 in the red Bibles. 737. While you turn there, just a reminder that our, our current series is entitled Exile in Babylon. And as we... Moving to this book, we are exploring the powerful message and practical application of Daniel for us today in the 21st century. And we've allotted two weeks on the preaching calendar for this particular chapter. And that's not simply because of this chapter's length. It's primarily because of this chapter's depth. Uh, Charles Feinberg, who is now with the Lord, happened to be the father of two of my mentors in seminary, Uh, Feinberg himself, a mentor to John MacArthur, said this about uh, Daniel chapter 2. The second chapter of Daniel has been justly called the alphabet of prophecy, the broad outline of God's future for the nations, for Israel, for the glorious kingdom of Messiah. This chapter, chapter 2, contains the simple and comprehensive framework of a multitude of future events. This document Nothing can compare with it. No political document can compare with it, and its importance cannot be overstated. And as exciting as the first half of chapter 2 is that we're going to see this morning, it's nothing compared to the back half of chapter 2. So this week all we're going to do is really lob the ball over the plate, and next week we're going to swing for the fences as we look at biblical prophecy and this apocalyptic picture of the world. So that's why it'll take two weeks with this chapter. But let's not wait a minute longer, trusting you've got your Bibles open to Daniel chapter 2. I'm going to start reading in verse 1, and I'll break off the reading after verse 13. Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dream. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive for me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. Well, they answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Hmm. We'll hold up the reading there and summarize what we just heard with point number one. When it comes to the knowledge of the future, the world doesn't have the first clue. When it comes to the knowledge of the future, the world doesn't have the first clue. At the time of this dream, Nebuchadnezzar was king of Babylon Babylon, at the moment, was the single greatest world power on the scene in 605 B.C. Prior to the captivity of Israel, that is uh, made mention of in chapter 1 of this book in 605 B.C., the Babylonians had already conquered the Assyrians and the Egyptians. They knew how to subdue the world powers who were big players in the ancient Near East at the time. So as you read verse 1, you've got to imagine the subtext here. In the second year of the reign of the most powerful human being on the face of the earth, this same man had dreams. Not just any dreams. This man, as we'll learn next week, had been given a prophetic vision of the future by God himself that will amount to nothing short of an apocalyptic nightmare for all of the kingdoms of this world. Though Nebuchadnezzar is at the top of his game in Daniel chapter 2, if he does not repent of his pride, he will soon find himself at the bottom of a pile of rubble in due time. So he calls his advisors. Now think of these guys. You've got the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans. These are Nebuchadnezzar's top advisors. This is the king's cabinet. And he confesses to them in verse 3, I had a dream. And my spirit is troubled to know the dream. It's interesting, as I read commentaries, some suggest that he actually had forgotten the content of the dream, and he wanted them to uh, remind him of what he saw. I I tend to take the view that Nebuchadnezzar knew exactly what he saw, and if nothing by implication here, uh, just to to test their powers of perception, he wants to know if they can see what he saw. Well, the Chaldeans are smooth, aren't they? You betcha. Just tell us the content of the dream, and we'll tell you what it means. It's at this point in the conversation where we begin to see precisely who they're dealing with in Nebuchadnezzar, don't we? Verse 5 The king answered and said, The word from me, perhaps you didn't hear me. The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. And in case you're wondering, that's not an idle threat. This guy was not all bark and no bite. He was a violent man. And this is not the last time we're going to see such a warning from his lips. If you were to turn over to Daniel chapter 3, verse 29, you'd see the same thing. In fact... Daniel lives long enough into the next empire, the Persian Empire, to see a king actually follow through on a threat like this. In Daniel chapter 6, verse 24, King Darius feeds the men of his cabinet plus their wives and their children to the lions. And they are dead, torn limb from limb before they hit the bottom of the pit. So Nebuchadnezzar's not bluffing. He is informing these elite elite soothsayers and fortune tellers that he will have them physically dismembered if they can't tell him his dream, much less its interpretation. So they push back in verse 7. Tell us the dream. Nebuchadnezzar just doubles down in verses 8 and 9, doesn't he? He reminds them he won't be lied to. And if they can't read his mind, revealing the content of his dream, they will die. It's as simple as that. Well, the Chaldeans' answer in the next two verses is as honest as it is desperate. They say to Nebuchadnezzar, starting in verse 10, There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing the king asks is difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods, lowercase g, plural, whose dwelling is not with flesh. These verses are profound in what they communicate. Uh, 5th century church father Theodoret of Sur paraphrases the Chaldean's response. He's acting as if he is a Chaldean, and he says this, What is humanly possible you may require from us, but not that which is beyond our nature. Such knowledge does not belong to human beings. As the Chaldean said, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. That's exactly right. And not only that, but as we seek to apply this in our context today, there's not a religion on earth that can meet the king's demand that knows the thoughts of a man's mind and knows the future of mankind. No humanly devised world religion has any idea how to approach such a demand. Not Buddhism, not Confucianism, nor Islam, nor New Age spirituality, not Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses, no head of state or kingdom or country over the course of mankind has ever been able to meet this king's demand. What's more, the folks that you're praying for on your list of five, they don't know either. They look around this world as we do and they see it careening out of control and they wonder what's next. And it's terribly unnerving when you don't know what's ahead for this world. No mere human being has this answer anywhere. Verse 11 is spot on. The thing that the king asks is difficult. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Isn't that an interesting way to put it? We can state the same thing positively. The gods can show this difficult thing to the king. But since they don't make their dwelling with flesh, we're out of luck. Which, insofar as it goes, is true, since these gods don't have an existence. But what about God? Like the one true and living God. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What about the second person of the Trinity who came down from heaven to earth for us and for our salvation, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin? What about the Word who was God, who became flesh and indeed made His dwelling among us, contrary to verse 11? What about that God? Well, with that God, what we don't have is so much a religion but reality. Not so much a religion, but a revelation of the one true God. It's like Pascal said, if you think about the Christian religion in this sense, in the Christian religion, the Christian reality, the Christian revelation, I find actual prophecy, and I find it in no other. So Mount Evangelical Free Church, when it comes to the knowledge of the future, the world doesn't have the first clue. Now let's go on ahead and pick up our story in verse 14, and I'll read, to the end of verse 23. Daniel chapter 2 starting in verse 14. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the king, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, "Why is the decree of the king so urgent?" Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, to Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. And he told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night, and Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's matter. Here's the second point today. When it comes to the knowledge of the future, only God knows the end from the beginning. When it comes to the knowledge of the future, only God knows the end from the beginning. Now, in this point, I'll be honest with you and say that I think the outline of the chapter is a little sloppy. I think the the printer got ahead of the preacher here. It's not that point two isn't true. It is true, but the thrust of this middle section here of chapter two is a whole lot broader than just what God knows about the future. Uh, Then, God's omniscience, that he knows all things, that he knows the end from the beginning. That's true, and I think we can establish that here like in verse 20. To God belongs wisdom. Or verse 22, he knows what is in the darkness. We could meditate on that for a while with prophet, I think. Verse 22 flies in the face uh, of a controversial theology that was being hotly debated maybe about a, a decade and a half ago known as open theism. Open theism is the view that God does not know the future free actions of human beings because they are not there to know until we do them. So open theism denies God's exhaustive foreknowledge of the future. That which we have not done is in the darkness, if you like, and no one can see in the darkness. Is that what verse 22 says? God has an exhaustive foreknowledge of that which is in the dark. God knows all things. He's omniscient. But this passage claims more. God doesn't merely have a knowledge of all things past and present and future. God is also sovereign and omnipotent over all things. So verse 20, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might. Verse 21, he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Let's remember that as we head into another election cycle. He deposes presidents and sets up new ones. God's not only aware of all things, he's in charge of all things. So God is omniscient, he's all-knowing. He's omnipotent, he's all-powerful. And if that weren't enough... God is able to make known to us what is first only known to him. Verse 21, God gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Verse 22, he reveals deep and hidden things. And then verse 23, Daniel has the experience of this. To you, O God, of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. So God is omniscient, he knows all things. God is omnipotent, he's in charge of all things and powerful to accomplish all things. And he is able to communicate that which was previously unknown and make it to be known. This is what we call predictive prophecy. Predictive prophecy is history written in advance. History written across the pages of the Old and New Testament. Much of it before it ever occurred. History written in advance, available for our reading and study and meditation, and most importantly, our trembling and our trust. Which brings us to our final point today. So I want to I review where we are up to this point, that Pascal was right. Under the Christian religion, we find actual prophecy, and we find it in no other. The world doesn't have a clue when it comes to a knowledge of the future, but when it comes to the knowledge of the future, only God knows the end from the beginning. Now, knowing at the same time the bankruptcy of the world's knowledge represented by the Chaldeans here and the riches of the knowledge of God, Daniel wastes no time in responding to the crisis. Let's pick up the account in verse 24 and I'll read through verse 30. Daniel had just gotten a vision for the future. In verse 24, Therefore, Daniel went in to Ariok, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found... "...among the exiles from Judah, a man who will make known to the king the interpretation." And the king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, "...are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation?" Daniel answered the king and said, "...no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries." And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dreams and the visions of your head as you lay in your bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom I had more than all the living but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind here's i want to frame our third and final point today when it comes to the knowledge of the future the scriptures are a gold mine but we're going to have to dig When it comes to the knowledge of the future, the Scriptures are a goldmine. They're an absolute goldmine, but we're going to have to dig. Once again, I'm not crazy about the way I've worded this point, not because it's not true, but because this wording actually points forward to verses 31 to 45, which contain the actual revelation and then the interpretation of this prophecy. This section, though, we've read is, is, is packed, isn't it? Verse 24 We shouldn't fly over this. Verse 24 says that Daniel's possession of this prophetic vision is going to save the wise men of Babylon. Daniel becomes the savior of these Chaldeans. I think pointing forward in many ways to Christ. He becomes the savior of these people with his wisdom. And the wise men of Babylon are not torn limb from limb. Starting in verse 27, Daniel reminds the king no wise men, enchanters, or magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery the king has asked, and not because of any of his own unique wisdom, but rather that there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And this particular mystery, this dream that this pagan king had, is about what Daniel refers to in verse 28 as the latter days. You see that phrase there? The latter days. That is. Biblical language for predictive end time prophecy, in other words. This is not going to be for Daniel. It will be for a time far beyond him. It was my privilege this past week to correspond briefly with a, a dear mentor of mine, Dr. Steve Roy. Steve grew up here in the cities in Edina, and he has spent the last decade and a half or so, as a professor at, at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School on the north shore of Chicago. Steve Roy is the one who gave us a number. I mentioned when we were studying 2 Thessalonians, the number is 4,017. Remember that number? There are 4,017 predictive prophecies on the pages of Holy Scripture. Does that take your breath away? 4,017 now, I haven't laid eyes on all 4,017 in a single list, but I know he's the guy that's got it, so I Facebook messaged him, and he sent me a list of 2,323 prophecies, which is helpful, not entirely satisfying. I wanted all 4,017, but the 2,323 prophecies that he gave me is remarkable But the big number, according to his reckoning, is is 4,017. 4,017 times in the Bible, God engages in predictive prophecy. Here's the breakdown, if you want. 4,017. 128 of those have to do with what God is going to do in and through nature. 128 of them. 1,893 of them have to do with what God will do in and through human beings. 1,893 of them. 1,474 of them are about what believers will do or have done to them that God has seen. That's 1,474. And then 522 of them are are about what unbelievers will do or have done to them. Now, I checked it several times in my calculator. You add up those numbers, it's 4,017. As much as 27%, that is over one quarter of the Bible, is predictive prophecy. And it's here in Daniel chapter 2, especially in what we'll devote an entire sermon to next week, that we will see history written in advance. Daniel 2.31 through Daniel 2.45 spans a period of history that Jesus refers to in Luke 21.24 as the times of the Gentiles. That's the time we're living in right now by the way. The times of the Gentiles. The span of world history running from 605 B.C. clear up through the present day and on into the future anticipating the return of Jesus where Jesus will come and return physically, visibly to reign from Jerusalem and set up his kingdom on this earth. It would be impossible to overstate the importance of the back half of Daniel chapter 2. The way that we interpret these verses has a powerful influence on our lives, how we live them, how we engage in the mission of our soon and coming king. But we're going to have to wait till next week before we launch into it. So let's review. In the words of Blaise Pascal, under the Christian religion, we find actual prophecy, and we find it in no other. When it comes to a knowledge of the future, the world, I assure you, does not have the first clue. When it comes to the knowledge of the future, only God knows the end from the beginning. And when it comes to the knowledge of the future, the scriptures are an absolute goldmine, but we're going to have to dig. I invite you to come back And please don't come without your shovel, okay? We're gonna dig next week. Right now, let's pray.